first place, God's people praising him for his restorative power with joy for his faithfulness. And this joy is heard in the first three verses. I'll read those again. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. And Israel responds, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. And the inspired author expresses the great joy of Israel as they were now restored or returned to their land. And he says, we were like those who dreamed. In other words, they were in a state of bliss. They couldn't believe this was happening. That's the state of mind that Israel walked around with when they were returned to their own country. Kind of delighted surprise. I don't know what you dream about, but sometimes I have this recurring dream where I dream I can just take off from the ground and just fly to where I want to go. Or sometimes I dream something I could never do in, 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 uh, in, in reality, run really fast for miles and miles and miles, right? And in that dream, while the dream is going on, before you wake up and you realize, oh, it's just a dream, you know, you Feel, have these feelings of euphoria. You think this is wonderful. And, and if you were able to, you'd say, I hope this dream never ends. Well, Israel was walking around in this, uh, with this feeling of euphoria as if they were dreaming. They couldn't believe this was actually happening. And not only did they feel this internally, they were expressing it uh, internally, as, uh, or did they feel the excitement, but they uh, enjoy internally, they also gave expression to it physically. They were overjoyed. They said that their mouths were filled with laughter. The laughter of sheer happiness. This naturally poured out of them. Their delight knew no end. This is what they were feeling. Immeasurable joy that erupted in involuntary laughter. Every time they would look around and they realized where they were. Involuntary laughter would just erupt from them. The psalmist records that their tongues were filled with shouts of joy. Another way of saying that is they sang. And we can relate to that, especially as Christians. What do we do when we are blissfully happy? When relief finally comes after a long wait, after an agonizing time of suffering, after, say, you have been witnessing to a certain person, praying for them that they would come out of their atheism, and they would become a Christian. And finally, one day, perhaps, Lord willing, the phone rings and they says, guess what? I, I gave my life to Jesus last night. What do we do? What's one of the first things we do? We sing. We sing praise to our God. How great thou art just comes, just bubbles out of us. Great is thy faithfulness. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. My great Redeemer's praise, right? It just naturally comes, it seems to escape from our lips. And what could possibly have caused such joy to pour out of Israel? And verse 1 tells us, in the original uh, literal translation says, The Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. That is, He had brought them back to their homeland. When it speaks of Zion here, we know Zion was uh, originally David's stronghold in, in Jerusalem. But it became a term over the years for all the people of Israel. And so at, at times, Israel would be spoken of as Zion, the city of God. And yet, we read of this great city, and this is in 2 Chronicles 36, 
verses 17 to 21, and I read this just so we have the context of, of why this is so wonderful. Uh, 2 Chronicles 36, verse 17, we read, Therefore he, that is God, brought up against them, Israel, the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Israel, at one time we know, was the mightiest of the mighty. At one time it was said that silver was, was as common as pebbles. But they had been besieged by Babylon and forced into exile. The city was destroyed. The citizens who were not killed, and many were, were carried off to Babylon where they would remain for 70 years. And in Babylon, they would be forced to learn a different language, and they would have to learn to live according to the culture of their new masters. And by the way, that's not to say that life was completely impossible or that all the experience was sorrow in Babylon. The Lord is good to His people. He remembers us, even there. In exile, even in, in, in spite of their sins against him. We, if we study the Old Testament, we see that uh, many of the customs of the Jews were allowed to continue in Babylon. The elders were allowed to hold on to their positions. They were not constantly restrained and supervised and enslaved as they were in Egypt. Some even had their own houses. Those who were skilled tradesmen found employment. They were given fertile land to plant their crops. In fact, when we read in Ezekiel 1 of uh, Israel being by the river Kebar, the river Kebar, that area was a rich farming area. Or we might think of Daniel and his friends who rose to prominent positions in Babylon. But at the same time, this was still punishment. Psalm 137 really brings that out, the sorrow that they felt. It gives expression to, their, to the utter humiliation and frustration that they felt while in Babylon in captivity. They had been uprooted from their beloved homeland. They were captives among this pagan people, and they were disgraced. No wonder Psalm 137 tells us that they wept at the rivers of Babylon. And they could not bring themselves to, to, to sing the songs of Zion because they were longing for their own uh, land. And they had the mocking of their enemies, the Edomites, ringing in their ears. And they had before their minds, I, we can imagine day and night, the vivid memory of those pagans plundering their cities and destroying their temple, which was the symbol of their religion. And, and, and on top of all of that, there was the knowledge that they had brought all of this upon themselves. 
and that their only hope was in the Lord saving them. Their situation, humanly speaking, was hopeless. But then we read in the book of Ezra, chapter 1, verses 5, these amazing words. Ezra 1, starting at verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. This is Cyrus, the king of Persia, speaking of what the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, had commissioned him to do. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of, of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem." That is absolutely amazing. Suddenly, after 70 long years in exile, Israel found themselves returning to their homeland. And we read how this happened. That this foreign king of Persia, who had at this time, of course, conquered the Babylonians and taken control of all the territory, the Lord stirred up his heart. He moved his heart to send his people back. This was an amazing thing. That would be equivalent to say Justin Trudeau starting to give billions of dollars to the church and saying, you know what? We need more churches. We need the gospel preached. Right? That would, that's how ludicrous that, that, would, uh, that would seem. It's an amazing thing. Whoever, whoever heard, really, of a ruler sending his subjects back to their own country. But this is what God did. This is what God is capable of. He brought back the captivity to Zion. And so no wonder it was said, not first and foremost by Israel, but by the nations, the pagans. They said, Yahweh, again, using the covenant name of Israel's God, Yahweh has done great things for them. Even the pagans, the non-Jews, recognized that an impossible thing had been done. And it's one thing to believe that we've actually experienced divine intervention ourselves. It's another, isn't it, to actually have someone else recognize that it is God who has done this for us. And so Israel find themselves picking up on the words of the pagans, Yahweh has done great things. For us, and we are glad. And congregation, what we have to understand is that the joy that Old Testament Israel experienced because of God's faithfulness was but a preview, what we call a foreshadow, a glimpse or a picture to the joy that we have experienced with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord has restored us 
to our original place of residence through the suffering and death of His Son on the cross, through His resurrection and ascension into heaven. You say, what are you talking about? Well, in Genesis 3, we read of the fall of our parents, Adam and Eve, resulting in nothing less than our exile. Exile from what, you say? Well, from the eternal love and fellowship that we were meant to enjoy forever in heaven with God. And we became aliens because of sin. We became aliens and strangers in a foreign land. What foreign land? Outside of God's covenant love. Paul describes all mankind in Ephesians 2 as by nature children of Wrath, bearing the guilt of our parents, and now inclined to every sin, we had no relationship with God. We were outsiders. Peter describes us in 1 Peter 2, verses 9 to 10, as those who once were not a people and who had not obtained mercy. Before Jesus Christ came, we were in exile, we were estranged from God, we were shut out from His presence having no hope in and of ourselves to ever make things right. But just as he promised in Genesis 3.15, God sent the Restorer, capital R, into the world who would secure our return, who would break our chains and declare us free from the guilt that exiled us from God's presence and the sin that enslaved us. Isn't that what we hear of Jesus in Isaiah 61? In Isaiah 61, we hear this wonderful prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ in verses 1 to 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. That's us. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. That's us. To proclaim liberty to the captives. That's us. And the opening of the prisoner. Uh, the opening of the prison to those who are bound. That's also us. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. And so, beloved of God, we have to understand that in Jesus Christ, Psalm 126 has become our confession. We today may now pick up the words of the psalmist and we may rejoice in the faithfulness of our God to His promises who has restored us so that now we may now walk around as if we are in a dream and, and if we if we really come to terms with how sinful we are and yet how forgiven we are, how great is God's grace, it really is like we're walking around in a dream. This, this can't possibly be happening. It's too good to be true. We are amazed that we are once again children of God. We are heirs to His kingdom. We are chosen and precious stones in Zion. Our mouths have now been filled with laughter. Our tongues have been filled with singing. Our confession 
is the Lord, that the Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. And in Christ, we now look forward to the, to the great restoration in the new heavens and the new earth when God will make all things new and we will dwell with him once again forever and ever. But we also see in the second place God's people praising him for his restorative power with confidence for the future. Listen again to verses 4 through 6. Israel prays, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. The inspired psalmist expresses here Israel's confidence for the future because of God's faithfulness in the past. Look at what he had done for them. Here they were singing and praising God in their own land once again. A pagan king had shown mercy to his foreign subjects. The impossible really, we would say, had happened. And so now, in light of this, Israel now felt encouraged to request of God that he bring back all who were still left in Babylon, all the Israelites. And so they say, they pray, bring them back, Yahweh, like streams in the Negev. Now, probably that doesn't make any sense to us unless we've studied it in a commentary or a, a, a good um, study Bible. But the, the imagery here is actually quite beautiful. See, the Negev was a desert region to the south of Judah. And it was known for its dryness. Rainfall was very meager in that area. And the streams spoken of here by the psalmist refer to the channels or the rivulets that would bring water into the area during the winter months. And in summer, the, the riverbeds would just dry up. They would just turn to dust. The ground would become parched and, and useless for anything. And then suddenly the water would come. And it would fill up the channels that were before bone dry. And suddenly, this place that was just literally a desert, grass was springing up and they could pasture their cattle. And flowers were shooting up out of the ground. In itself, it was an annual miracle to see those waters arrive. One minute, the, the, the riverbeds were dry as dust. The next, they were filled with life-refreshing life-rejuvenating water. And the psalmist gives voice to Israel's understanding. Their understanding was that it was their God, not the gods of the pagan nations, but it was their God who restored the waters of the otherwise parched channels in the Negev desert region. And just as Israel would rejoice in the returning streams of water, they desired now, this is what they were praying, they desired to rejoice in the returning captives. They recognized, in other words, that if their God could bring back some to Jerusalem, why could he not bring back all the rest? Now, just for clarification, there were actually three returns to Jerusalem. The first was under Joshua and Zerubbabel. The second was under Ezra and the third under Nehemiah. And those spoken in Psalm 126 represent uh, the first wave, as we would say. And while they were ecstatic to be home, 
we can understand that they could not feel completely at ease until the rest of their fellow Jews were restored. And so they cry out, bring them back, Yahweh. Delight our hearts as we see them appear on the horizon. And they pray this with confidence based on God's faithfulness in bringing them back. In verses 5 to 6, they express this confidence that those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. Those who go forth weeping will return rejoicing. The confession here is that God is faithful to his promises. He doesn't forget his people. And again, remember the conditions under which Israel left. At the time of the Babylonian captivity, they were despised. They were in great despair. They were consumed with misery. They went out weeping. They went out in tears. And the seed they sowed was the hope of return someday, the hope of restoration. They were sowing those seeds of tears, of hope. And now, here they were. Not only returned to their land, but restored to God's covenant love and favor. God had reclaimed his people, redeemed them from their sin. Yes, they went into exile weeping, but God had brought them back with joy. And that's what gives them confidence for the future. This, that's what gives them the confidence to ask with boldness that God would bring back all his people to the homeland. And he did in the second and third wave. Well, what does that have to say to us the New Testament church. Well, for one thing, it reminds us of the confidence that we should have as we continue to sow our seed, that is the seed of the gospel, as we continue to witness and evangelize, to share our faith, however you want to put that. It reminds us that no matter what the circumstances, we may be confident as we sow our seeds in the hope of seeing people being converted and coming to Christ, coming into the kingdom. We may be confident because we know that God is faithful and he is powerful to save. It should make us think of the many who still are outside, who still are in exile, who need to be brought in. Peter says in 2 Peter 3 verse 9 that God is patient, not wanting any to perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so we should be praying for the vilest of sinners that we know, the greatest of atheists. And we must continue to go out bearing seed for sowing to the many who are yet exiled. Exiled where, you said? In false religion, in doubt, in distrust, in contempt, or just plain unbelief. And sometimes, brethren, we will indeed sow in tears, especially when we're dealing with loved ones, those close to us, because those are the hardest to speak to, about Christ with, right? Sons and daughters, relatives, friends and co-workers, neighbors. Maybe this morning we can think of, of beloved family members, who have wandered from the truth and won't listen, who dismiss everything we say about the Bible or Christianity as nonsense, as old-fashioned. 
Maybe this morning we can think of members who, over the years, the church has had the sad task of excluding from the fellowship of Christ. We think of those, and our hearts yearn for their return, for them to come to their senses, for them to come home. Or, or maybe you can think of yourself this morning. Maybe as you look into your heart, you say, I am so far from the Lord from where I used to be. I don't believe like I used to. I am in exile in my own sins, and I've done this to myself. I have no enthusiasm this morning to give to the Lord the glory due His name. I feel empty. Beloved, here is the promise. We shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing sheaves. By sheaves here, it's symbolic of representing a success. Sheaves are bundles of grain. We shall come back. We, we shall return, bringing sheaves with us. The encouragement here is not to give up. Don't throw in the towel. Continue to pray for the lost, for the wandering. Keep on sowing the seed of the gospel, regardless of how hopeless it may seem now or today. And it spurs, out, it spurs us on to cry out to God, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. If that is where we find ourselves personally this morning, in exile from God, an exile that we have, let's say, a self-imposed exile. Cry out to God, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Transform my mustard seed of faith into a flourishing tree once again. Psalm 126 calls us to believe that in the hands of our Heavenly Father, the vilest of sinners is a potential saint. The most stubborn, resistant child or parent or sibling today may be praising our triune God tomorrow. We can have this confidence because we trust in the God who restores who can accomplish the impossible, who can change hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, who can make alive those who were dead in their sins and trespasses, who can make dry bones live. And one day, together with all the redeemed and the restored saints, we will come home with shouts of joy to experience once again the blessings of heaven with our Father. You know, Revelation 21 promises that at the second coming of Jesus, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things will have passed away. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that? That all that we have suffered in this life, all that we will suffer for the rest of our lives will never be able to hurt us again in the new heavens and the new earth. But there's one thing I have to say before we close. Dear people of God, let's remember that in order to have that kind of surety, in order to be confident that you will be among the restored in heaven. 
You have to be trusting in the ultimate restorer. Again, capital R, the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to be trusting in Him because in Him alone there's no other name given under heaven by which we are saved except the name of Jesus Christ. We know that. In Him alone are we brought back into God's love. And let's remember also that He continues to seek out through us, you and me, those who are yet at a distance from Him in exile. Let us continue to praise our God for His restorative mercies and let us rejoice even now as we anticipate the great and glorious and wonderful blessings still to come. Amen.